Yay, everybody. If you're wondering what the response is, uh, the little boxes on Zoom just went up in the gathering space. And so we can see it. So give a wave, everybody. Give a wave on if you're on Zoom. They are. Hi, everybody. Look, guys, we're gathered, right? <laughs> like, this is, this is what it means in these times. Um, I wanted to start today uh, just by, again, acknowledging that it is Black History Month this week, and especially in preparation for this text. I was thinking a lot about the just great heritage of black music in America and uh, all <laughs> how much influence that has on just about every genre of music that we would so associate with anything like American music. And the fact that so much of black music finds its roots in the spiritual, in songs sung by slaves on southern plantations. And uh, was reading this week, uh, by the way, another just wonderful recommended resource is, I, I'm not sure you can't see this, on, on, or maybe you can, I don't know how close they're zoomed into me, but uh, this is a book called Might from the Margins by a New Testament scholar named Dennis Edwards. Wonderful, wonderful book uh, about, the subtitle of it is The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. Uh, one, of, one of the best books that I've read kind of in, on this topic and, and in this genre. And in one of the chapters, he talks about the power of worship as a uh, protest to the injustice in the world. He talks specifically uh, about um, slave songs, about these uh, what are known as uh, traditionally as Negro spirituals. And he actually quotes another theologian who says, the spirituals are songs about black souls stretching out into the outskirts of God's eternity and affirming the word that makes you know that you are a human being. No matter what white people say, through the song, black people are able to affirm that spirit who is continuous with their existence as free beings, and they created a new style of religious worship. They shouted and they prayed. They preached and they sang because they had found something. They encountered a new reality, a new God, not enshrined in white churches and religious gatherings only. The spirituals are evidence of the power of worship. In their worship, through songs and actions, many slaves were communicating that they had a relationship with a Savior who understood them like no one else and who would mete out justice at some point. Worship was, of course, directed toward God, the only legitimate object of human worship, but also served as witness. Slaves bore witness in their worshiping, testifying of the true master who is mighty and just in contrast to their human masters. And handed down from those beautiful songs, we get the blues, and then eventually... We get jazz, and we even get rock and roll largely from that. And yet the fact that this tradition was forged in the profound suffering that came from the attempted uh, intentional dehumanization of, of black people in our nation's history, and yet the fierce faith that persevered uh, through that, that fought through that with worship of all things. I felt remiss this week uh, in light of the fact that the, the exclusion of the other is, is part of the mixed legacy of our national story. Uh, I felt remiss not to mention uh, what many have been discussing over the last couple weeks, which is the increase in violence and racism against Asian Americans in our country. And as a church that has so many um, Asian Americans, I know that this is something that um, you're feeling in a particularly deep way. And insofar as what it means to be a multi-ethnic community is to empathize, to come alongside the suffering. Uh, 
just felt like it was important to say that, uh, that I grieve with you, that the church grieves with you, and that we are to be a people who in all of its forms reject the evil and the sin personally, systemically of racism. And the fact that uh, this virus and, and where it seems to have begun could so quickly uh, change the narrative about our neighbors, about people who bear the image of God and make them the other, make them an enemy, um, is a sad reminder that some of that, uh, that really, um, yeah, just awful, awful legacy of our national story, it still exists, right? Like, we can't too quickly move beyond that. And so we, especially the people of God, are to be people of repentance. Uh, we're to be people who turn from these things, but also do what we have uh, in the legacy of these spirituals, which is to actually defy by going to the only one who is truly just, to, to defy these things, um, yes, through action, yes, through these various things, but even as we talked about last week in Hebrews, that, that it all starts with considering who God is, with considering who Jesus is, then encountering him powerfully through worship, and then, yes, being moved to action and obedience. So may we be that people as yet another round um, of, of this kind of violence and racism arises in our country. As we do turn to Hebrews, this is an interesting way. Uh, we said last week, and I just said it, which is that Hebrews starts everything, all of its moves toward what we're to do, all of its move towards what obedience and faithfulness looks like by talking about Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus in the world, the greatness of Jesus. And it'll do this in various ways, but right here in chapter one, it's very interesting how it launches into its argument about the uniqueness of Jesus because hopefully you're listening close enough as Ryan read, the thing that uh, Jesus will be compared to many things, and he'll be called better than a lot of things. And did you notice, and I have, a, I have participants here, uh, did you notice the thing that he is being compared to first here? What is Jesus superior to here? Angels, right? Good, yeah, you were listening. Angels, which I don't know about you, but that's not necessarily like the first thing that I think of like, yeah, but is Jesus better than... Let's start with angels, right? And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about why is, why is this the place where the author of Hebrews begins their argument about how great Jesus is? And there's various theories. Maybe it comes down to th this was a group of people that the author's writing to that were particularly prone maybe to, to worshiping angels, to fascination with angels. Even our culture, even American culture, it goes through these times, right, touched by an angel, and there was a time where everybody had a little guardian angel pin, so maybe that's what's going on. But I think as we dig into it, there's something much deeper going on, and in fact, there's very little evidence that you have really any Jewish communities at that time who this was like their main temptation was to stray from faithfulness to God by worshiping angels. Instead, what seems to be going on is this is, call it, call it an argument from, from a surprising lesser to the greater. That actually what's going on here as we go through is that instead of comparing Jesus to something, sometimes we think of comparing Jesus to our idols, to various kinds of sin and how Jesus is better than that or, or uh, that kind of a thing. Instead, what the author is doing here is he's starting with about as high a comparison as he can make, second only to God himself, given the unique role of angels in the story of God. And that's what I want to show you this morning, is that this is probably the greatest thing, and it doesn't jump out at us, because a lot of us 
don't, aren't really familiar with the role of angels. But he's making the highest argument he can make right here at the beginning, given the uniqueness of what Jesus does and, and the role of angels in a story that Jesus uniquely fulfills. Okay, that's a lot to put out there. Let's just work through the text. So we looked at verses one through three last week. So I'm actually kind of picking this up mid-sentence, but I'll, I'll start where Ryan started. He's a radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So starting in verse 4, that's our text for the week, I, I want to just pause on having become. And this is the longest text we'll look at in Hebrew, so don't get nervous that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the first two words. We'll go a little quicker through the rest of it. But it's really important to see here that this is, hopefully you'll be less nervous about this statement by, by the end of, of our teaching, but that something actually changed for Jesus because of what he came and did. That something fundamentally changed about the role of Jesus in the universe and in the story of God because of what he did. I think sometimes we can, those of us familiar with the Christian story, for those of you not familiar with it, you're like, whatever, all right, I buy it. But for those of us familiar with the Christian story, we might have some conception that like Jesus always was a thing. He came and did something very, very strange in putting on human flesh, and then he went back and now he's doing the thing that he always used to be doing. That's just not the picture that the New Testament actually paints about the significance of Jesus's earthly ministry to what is now going on in the place that controls the world, namely heaven itself. So in what sense has Jesus, first two words here, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs? Let me get a few things out of the way quickly. This is not saying that Jesus previously was not in his being superior to the angels. We, we have a guarantee of that both before this verse where it says he's the exact imprint of God, no angels the exact imprint of God. We have evidence of this where it says that he was part of creation. That's going to repeat here in, in what the author is, is going to quote. Um, Jesus participated in creation. Angels are created beings. So it's not his, his being, his substance that was not superior to the angels before. Instead, this is talking about what Jesus came and did. Flip with me. This is why you need to be in your Bibles this morning, as every morning, every Sunday. Well, every morning, sure, um, but especially on Sundays. Look at, uh, in the second chapter, verse 9. Let, let me start right there. You, you see that, that break likely in the middle of chapter 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Jesus. God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. We'll talk about this next week, but here's what I want you to hear. But we see him, that's Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay? When Jesus came and put on human flesh, one of the things that he did is he actually... Think of it this way, spatially, like, like in, in the hierarchy of the world, he put himself under angels. Because here's the reality that human beings live in, is that human beings fundamentally, you gotta, you gotta this is where, right, we said last week, there's a little bit of shop talk here. You gotta know your Old Testament a little bit. 
Human beings were created. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. They were made in the image of God. We talk a lot about the importance of that in various ways to understanding Christianity correctly. What it means to be made in the image of God is less about who we are than what we were made to do. It's a category of function primarily. Yes, it says something about what we are, but it's what we do. And what human beings were made to do was to rule the world, to rule the world in obedience to God. That we were to be kings and queens of the world, in other words, in obedience, in submission to God's ultimate authority. That goes terribly wrong in the garden. How? We say, well, we don't want to be submitted to God. We want to, well, I like that I get to run the show, but I want to run the show the way that I want to run the show. That's the fall. That's the fall of Adam and Eve. I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament story in four minutes here. What happens next is instead of God giving up on them saying, well, that project failed, instead God pursues them and he pursues them through a single individual named Abraham. And the promise that he makes to Abraham is through you, the world will be blessed. That blessing will still come of your rulership of the world and, and kings will come through you and you, but you need to be obedient to me. So he's resetting the agenda there. He's saying, obedient to me, ruling the world. From there, you have the creation of the nation of Israel. And when God rescues the nation of Israel and gives them this identity, hey, you're the nation that I was making through Abraham, do you know what he calls them? He says, today I have made you a son, a kingdom of priests. This is the first language of king and priest in, in the Old Testament. This is massively important to understand Hebrews. What does a king do? A king rules. What does a priest do? A priest stands between God and people. So to say kingdom priest is basically a, a kingdom of priests. To say a priestly king, a kingly priest, is to simply say, I am restoring what it's always meant to be human through this nation. And so this nation has kings, this nation has priests, but all of them fall short. This is why it's so devastating when the kings of Israel are disobedient. It's so devastating when the priests instead do what they want to do instead of being go-betweens between God and people. The kings fail, the priests fail. But this promise is ultimately made to the greatest king in Israel, which was who? David, to King David, that one day David's throne will be established and there will be one who will perfectly rule the entire world in perfect obedience to God. And that one will uniquely be the son in the way that all humanity was supposed to be sons and daughters of God, kings and queens, priests and priestesses, there will be one who comes. And this becomes the great longing of the people of God. Promises throughout the prophets are made. This is what's called, I'm going to teach you a good theological term to grab, put it in your back pocket for Hebrews. This becomes the promise of the Davidic, in other words, of David, the Davidic Messiah which is, Messiah is just this word that means the anointed one, the one who's set aside, the one who's given a specific role, namely the role to be king like David was meant to be king, but as a priest who's perfectly obedient to God, okay? That's the Old Testament story. That's the Old Testament hope that the New Testament opens up with. We're waiting for a king who is also a priest. Now, the fact that that went horribly wrong that humanity is no longer ruling the world does not mean that now the world is completely out of God's control. Instead, 
what we get is a picture in the Old Testament that, that God still is reigning and ruling, but because humanity has rebelled, there is this chaos in the world. But God's continued intervention in the world is largely through messengers, spiritual messengers, those who remain perfectly obedient to God, but can't be the rulers because they're not human beings. So who is that? Angels. Good. I don't know who keeps responding. Is that you, Chris? Great job. Gold star for Chris Rodonovich today. Uh, maybe it's just I hear your voice louder. But yeah, you're tracking with me. Okay, so he, he makes these angels. So in other words, part of the reason why Hebrews starts with this comparison about angels is to say angels have way too prominent a role in the story up until now. And the fact that we have found one superior has less to do with his with his substance, with his nature as a member of the Godhead, then, as we'll see through the rest of this passage, then actually what he did as a human being. That Jesus' superiority to angels has more to do with what he did when he took on a human body than it does with the fact that he is superior simply because he is creator, not created thing. Now, that's true, but that's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see. Now track through this passage with me. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? This is Psalm 2. This is actually, here's your new bing word. This is the Davidic Messiah Psalm. The Psalms open up. First Psalm is about sort of personal wisdom, personal holiness. Second Psalm, hey, our hope is actually not in our own holiness. It's in the coming of this anointed one, this king, this priest, of the line of David. Boom, first thing quoted in Hebrews. Did he ever say this to angels? No, why not? Because the angels aren't human beings. They aren't, they aren't image bearers in the way that we are. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is literally 2 Samuel seven fourteen. The first one is Psalm 2. You can write this if you're a writer. Again, I have a very colorful Bible right now with all these little markers. The next one is 2 Samuel 7, 14, which is literally the text that was read when a new king was born at the inauguration. Right? Think of the inauguration that we just saw, that beautiful poem that the youth uh, poet laureate came up and she read. This is what was read at the king's inauguration. And it's saying that's what's happening right now. That's the reality is that Jesus now stands in and God is a father to him and, I will be, uh, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is what's so interesting here, and, and you might think I'm belaboring this, but it's so important to understand that the primary thing that the author of Hebrews is talking about here is that the reality of the universe has fundamentally changed with Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me just read you a couple other places where this is said, in case you think that this is just crazy Hebrews talk. Romans chapter 1, Paul's magnum opus. Here's how it starts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, right? Same thing. It's saying this is the great hope of the world that a son would come who is descended from David according to the flesh. Right? Like, hopefully that makes a little more sense now. This isn't just biblical mumbo jumbo. These are important promises. Now check this out. This is verse four. Romans one verse four says, and was declared 
to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. So he was declared to be the son of God. Do you hear that difference? We, Jesus was always the son of God. Don't get this twisted. He was always the pre-existent second member of the Trinity. But it says he was declared to be the son because of his resurrection. In other words, something fundamentally changed about his position in the universe because of what he did. This is like saying, um, this, the language here is like an heir apparent. You know what that means? H-E-I-R, an heir apparent. Someone who is waiting to rule, normally a firstborn son. Now that son has always been a son, but he doesn't step into the full role and responsibility of being son, capital S, until that that kingdom is handed over to him. Acts chapter 13, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. Here it is again. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the son, part of even what we say in the creeds is that the son is eternally begotten. In other words, he's not a created being. What this is getting at here, though, is not something about Jesus' nature. It's, it's about his role. It's saying that Jesus became the son in the full measure of what that means post-resurrection with his ascension. Last one, Acts 2, in, in the famous sermon of Peter, he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, this is Psalm 110, that'll be quoted at the end of Hebrews uh, chapter one. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has made him. Do you hear that? He has given him this title. Think of Philippians 2, another famous place where it says that because of what Jesus did, God bestowed on him the name that is above everything. Now, was Jesus not Lord previously? The answer is like a, a yes and no. No, he was always Lord in the sense of he was always a member of the Trinity. But, but yes, he wasn't always Lord in the sense of, here's the big payoff, in the sense of the one reigning and ruling over the universe is no longer God through a secondary means of angels is no longer, even as Jesus says, that there's a sense in which our human failure handed over authority to the devil, the prince of the power of the air, whatever that means, that, that, that the enemy had authority, that God's authority was mediated not through human beings, but through this, these spiritual beings that we couldn't really re relate to. Here's the big payoff of Hebrews chapter one. There is now what there was always meant to be in the universe, which is a human being reigning and ruling over all things. That's why he's superior to angels. Because he is the only human being actually capable of doing what literally, not a single of the whatever, I have no idea how many human beings have lived, but I, I can't even imagine what that number is at this point. But of the billions upon billions of people who have lived in human history, who have put on the image of God. He is the only one capable of fulfilling what it meant to bear that image. This is why he's the exact imprint of God's nature because he shows us perfectly who God is, but he does it as a human being. And so a human being now reigns and rules 
over the universe. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1, I'm back in Hebrews, he says, let all God's angels worship him. What's interesting about this is you might think of this as when Jesus was born, uh, angels worshiped him, and that's certainly true. That's one interpretation of this text. Interestingly, the author of Hebrews uses the same word for world in chapter 2, verse 5, to talk about the world to come. And so this could also be when Jesus entered into his role in heaven, that was the moment where the angels bowed and worshiped him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, likely here comparing. They're not human beings. They're spiritual beings. They're like wind. They're like air. They're like fire. Jesus is, a, is an embodied human being. But of the sun, he says, your throne Oh God, this is God saying over the son, son, who are you? You are God, right? Like let's not so emphasize that Jesus is the perfect human being to the exclusion of, don't forget, he's also God. He's also the second member of the Trinity. Hebrews is being crystal clear about this. Your throne, oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, here's another title for Jesus that that makes him one with the Father, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, this is Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is another psalm that's talking about the installation, the inauguration of a king. And God says, there will be one who uniquely I hand authority over and this one will see the defeat of all of God's enemies one day. Are they not, that's angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You see, angels were always meant to serve us. And now, with Jesus enthroned as the human being reigning and ruling over all things, that worship, that service has begun. The universe is being set right. It's a fascinating argument that the author opens this letter with. Okay, so what's the point of all that? Other than... Hopefully that's just fascinating theology to you. Verses 1 to 4 answer the question, so what? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. This is talking about in the Old Testament, and especially in in various... uh, Jewish literature commenting on the scriptures, it's made very clear that the angels are the ones who give the law, right? They're these go-betweens between God and humanity. So they're the ones who actually give the law. They're the ones who who, uh, hand the law over to God's people. And that uh, everything that they warned the people about, the judgment that was coming turned out to be true. And so he says, how shall we, verse 3, escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit 
distributed according to his will. There's two things that I would offer as the so what of all that highfalutin theology that some of you just, just ate up and others of you are like, okay, interesting. One is the thing that Hebrews will say again and again is even if you're not the theological type, you got to consider everything that was just laid out here because it fundamentally changes everything about how you think of yourself, how you think of the universe, how you think of what's important. That the fundamental reality of the universe is the one who made purification for your sins is now reigning and ruling over all things and waiting to put every enemy of God under his feet. You know why that matters? Because either, for one thing, either we accept that offer of the purification of our sins or guess who one of the enemies one day put under his feet will be? You. Could be me. If we don't actually repent. You see, we have sometimes far too fuzzy teddy bear of you of Jesus. And yes, he is full of grace and mercy. And yes, he came and did unimaginably put, put the very being of the creator of the universe in the way of our sin and shame and death itself on our behalf. And now he is reigning and ruling over all things including your life. And one day you will stand before him and give an account to whether you considered that or whether you neglected it, to use the word used here in Hebrews. Whether you meditated upon that about the fundamentally most important fact about your life or whether you said, eh, there's probably more significant things to give attention to in this world. This is who we're dealing with. This is who Jesus is. He's not a nice teacher. He's not a nice prophet. He's not a nice inspirational Instagram spiritual advisor. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power and ruling over all things as we speak, as the human being that we could not be. And now he is offering you and saying, is there any other hope in the universe? And the answer is no. And yet he says, and yet hope exists in the universe because I exist in the universe. And I rule over your life and all it takes to accept my rulership is you just got to bow the knee and no longer do what humanity has done again and again, which is to say, that sounds good and all, but I'm still not sure if God's really for me as much as I'm for me. And then we destroy our lives, make a mess of things and say, yeah, but I still trust me more than him. The other thing that I would say here is the thing that Hebrews will say again and again is because of who Jesus is, because of how he now functions in the universe, he has made himself infinitely approachable in a way that one day he will be infinitely unapproachable potentially in your sin and rebellion. He has made himself utterly available to you. And look, I'm saying this to those who have not put their faith in Jesus to this point is he's available. His arms literally are open wide as they were on the cross for you to approach him. This is how so many ask, if Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things, why is the world still a mess? And the unified answer of the New Testament is, guess what? So that you, part of the mess, have a chance to repent 
and be part of its renewal and be part of its salvation rather than its destruction. The answer always to why is the world the way that it is? The negative side of that is always you and me. The positive side, the fact that the thing still somehow holds together, that there's any good in our lives, that there's joy, that there's beauty, that there's anything is because of the one who is reigning and ruling over it. But he's made himself approachable. And look, don't miss this follower of Jesus either. Here's what I would say to you. I would say, do not go your, your entire Christian life being what a friend of mine calls a second-hander. What I mean by second-hander is someone who knows a lot about God, but doesn't know God. Who loves reading about God, but never actually speaks to that God. Who's around a lot of people who know God and relate to him and relate a lot to those people, but never actually turn their gaze to him. The most terrifying thing I think that Jesus maybe ever said was in that day when we do stand before him, many will say to him, Jesus, Jesus, I knew so much about you. I actually did a lot of stuff even for you. And what will he say? Away from me. I have no idea who you are. I have no idea who you actually are. Right? right now we are in the midst of a discipleship course where we are saying again and again, abide, abide, abide. That word, what I love about that word is it's actually a fairly like common use word in that time. It's the same word, our little, our favorite story uh, in the Bible is the story of Jacob's well. And at the end of the story of Jacob's well, Jesus, I don't know if you remember this, the woman's testimony causes a bunch of people to repent and believe. And so Jesus goes into the city and it says he stays with them for a couple days. And it says they were begging him to stay with them. That word stay there is the word abide. They were begging him to what? Just just, just keep relating to us. Hang out with us is, is what one translation does with that. And have you been around Jesus so much that you've never actually abided with him, hung with him, got to know him, talked to him? Right? So much of this just comes down to have you talked to him in prayer? Does he know your heart? Have you been as vulnerable with him as the most vulnerable person, the, the person with whom you're most vulnerable in your life? That's what he wants. He just, he's made himself so approachable. And to never approach him is unfathomable if we have considered who he is. He got life right. Do you see that? I want to be around people who tend to get life right. He got it perfectly right. And so don't you, don't you want his counsel? Don't you want his comfort? Don't you want his empathy? Don't you want his insight and wisdom in your life? And we could do that secondhand. We could say, well, yeah, I'll read another good theology book. I'll, I'll listen to another sermon. I'll, I'll talk to a friend about who Jesus is. And Jesus is going, I'm reigning and ruling. I'm, I'm, your, I'm your king, yes, but I'm also your perfect priest. Now, we haven't gotten to that yet. That's where the rest of Hebrews is going. But I'm, I'm the one who perfectly connects you to divinity. The only one who could. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the knowledge of divinity apart from me. And so Christian who's been walking with Jesus for five, 10 years, right? The language that Hebrews uses here is, have you drifted? Have you neglected that firsthand encounter of Jesus? And one of the things that I'll say is keep coming to decors and we're gonna keep giving you opportunities to do that at least on Wednesday nights to get a feel because here's the reality. 
I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll do the craziest thing. I'll quote Rachel quote, quoting me this week, which I don't really remember saying this, but I was like, mm, that's good. So here we go. Is she said that sometimes apparently I talk about the disproportionate blessing of prayer. And I don't know if I came up with that or if you heard that somewhere, but thanks, Rach, for crediting me with that. But isn't it true? Have you ever had this experience? You've been watching Netflix for three hours, and then for three minutes you pray, and somehow the three minutes does a, oh, to your soul that another episode of Homeland just won't do? There is a disproportionate comfort, energizing joy that happens in the presence of the ruling king of the universe. And we're so seldom wise enough to get out of our normal rhythms, to get out of our normal wandering and neglect and actually approach that and gain from this one who has made himself approachable, though he's reigning and ruling over all things. This is the last thing that I'll say, is uh, even our graphic for this series is a little boat out on water because the, the analogy that I want to go back to again and again is this idea of the journey of faith. And what the author of Hebrews will particularly pick up is, I said this last week, but it bears repeating, is the author of Hebrews will again and again say that the journey of Israel from its freedom from slavery in Egypt to the promised land has all of the contours of the journey of faith in the here and now. And the part of that story that is most similar to where we live is the wilderness. Because we stand between two things. We stand between God's great redemptive rescuing and freeing of us from sin and from the the powers of this world and from Satan's reign and rule through the cross and resurrection. Redemption and salvation is behind us in some sense. But... Out ahead of us is the full, the full realization of all of the blessings of that salvation. For the people of God, it was the full realization of promised land. And yet there was this journeying toward that. So now is the most important thing to understand about the whole like, idea of time in the New Testament is that we live in between. We, we live in an in-between time. And the in-between for us is the cross and resurrection behind us and the renewal of all things out ahead of us. And so what right now is, is wilderness. And I hope at some point, especially as people are potentially here in weeks to come, that I'll get an amen then. Does anyone feel like the journey of faith recently has felt like wilderness, not like skipping through the tulips? Yeah. And so what Hebrews is going to do is it's going to give us encouragement for the wilderness. It's going to give us wisdom for the wilderness. It's going to give us warning in the wilderness because that's what faith feels like. And that's what I love about the honesty here. The the word that's used here in Hebrews 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That term drift away is a nautical term. This is drifting away like a boat that's no longer tied to the dock. That just kind of, you know, you can picture it, and little by little, it's sort of fading away, right? This is drifting away like a boat that, you know, its sail is up, but there's no intending to the sail, and it's just kind of moving like this. What I love there is that this brings up all kinds of images for me that so deeply resonate with the life of faith. Because here's what the life of faith, and again, I'll get an amen eventually. Here's what the life of faith is not. 
I meet Jesus and it's just straight up to heaven, baby. And it's straight up to faithfulness and transformation and, and full obedience. Is that anyone's experience? What does it feel like? Uh. Right? It's this sort of it's this sort of back and forth. Sometimes I'm far from God and then he brings me back. And then sometimes and we'll talk about all the contours of what's involved in that. But here we have this reality that so much of what most threatens our faith is not outright obedience and rebellion. It's drifting. It's wandering. It's letting the next shiny thing go. That looks really nice. It's neglect. Do you know what neglect is? It's all of us who kill plants in our homes because we forget to water them. And, you know, it's been three weeks since I've read my Bible. Uh, D course is kind of late. And, you know, I, I didn't get to be there on Sunday. And, you know, and we just kind of neglect and you find yourself sort of wandering away. And one of the things that Hebrews will do again and again is say, be warned, drifter. Be warned, wanderer. Because there's peril out ahead of you. There's peril away from attentiveness to Jesus. There's peril out away from drawing near to him again and again. And the image that I plan to go back to again and again is the image of, uh, from the, the Odyssey, from Ulysses. Who here is familiar with the story of Ulysses? There you go. Ulysses coming home from the Trojan War, trying to get home to his family. He encounters all of these various trials. And one of the most famous stories, you might not even be that familiar with Homer's epic poem, but you might be familiar with this, is he has to go by uh, the sirens. Do you know the story? The sirens. There are these beautiful women with these beautiful voices who sing this song that is so tempting to ships as they go by. And meanwhile, behind them, we're told in the poem, is just like a pile of bones that, that actually getting close enough to them leads to destruction. This resonates deeply with what Hebrews is, is trying to warn us from. This is our first warning passage in Hebrews. And do you know what Ulysses does when he knows he's about to go by the island with the sirens? Does anyone know what he has his crew do? The crew covers their ears. What does Ulysses do? He has them tie him to the mast. There's very famous paintings of Ulysses like this. Why is he tied to the mast and everyone else's ears are stopped? Because he's the captain of the ship and he gets to say where it goes. And so he knows that if he can't put his hands on the steering wheel, if they're tied behind his back, that they will have no chance of veering off. And follower of Jesus, there are times to ask others to tie us to the mast, that that is part of the life of faith. To tell her brother or sister, I'm hearing a song that's tempting me. I'm seeing some patterns in my life. I'm starting to be neglectful and wandering in my faith. Would you tie me to the mast? Would you call me? Can I text you when the temptation arises? Can you hold me accountable? Can we meet a little bit more often on Zoom? Can you actually follow up with me when we promise to? Can you actually be praying for me because I need spiritual power? Would you tie me to the mast? What I love, though, is that there's another story about the sirens. Uh, it's another Greek myth about Jason and the Argonauts. Who's familiar with Jason and the Argonauts? Yeah, see, not as many. This one isn't as known. Rachel Palmer knows Jason and the Argonauts. They also encounter the sirens 
You know what they do? Here's your real trivia right here. Who are you looking at? Julie and Jig. Do you know what they do? No pressure if not. Instead of being tied to the mast, what Jason does is that he brings along with him some of the most beautiful musical players in the world to play on the, on the deck of the ship while they go past. You see, because he believes that the beauty of their music can drown out the false temptation of the music elsewhere. You see, this is what I love about the Christian life. Sometimes you just fight like crazy. Sometimes it's time for defense. But that's not, <laughs> that can't sustain a life. You might say, I've tried that, and it's tiring, and it's, exhaust, it, it's exhausting. You see, sometimes we also need to realize that there's offense to be played, that there's music to be played that's more beautiful. There's something more captivating. There's something more enduring. There's something that instead of a pile of bones behind it has life flowing from it. And it's the one that we're called to consider. Hear the music of heaven because it is the music of your Savior. Hear the music of heaven because it is mercy and grace in your absolute worst moment. Hear the music of heaven because it is perfect wisdom because it's coming from the only one who ever got life right. Hear the music of heaven because it is perfect Perfectly empathetic because he suffered everything you ever will. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be down. He knows what it's like to be forgotten and cast aside. He knows what it's like to face down death and suffering and the loss of seemingly everything that matters. And yet he sings over you, I am with you. He sings over you, I am sufficient grace. Come what may in your life. And all he says is, would you open your ears to listen? You see, they don't stop their ears. They leave them wide open. And so, yeah, there's a time to tie yourself to the mast. And it takes wisdom to know which is which. But also, we are invited to hear the music of heaven through this one who now reigns and rules over all things. Consider him, Jacob's Hall. Consider him again and again. Don't see this as just theological mumbo-jumbo. This is the most important thing about the reality that you are living in. This is ultimate reality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is hope in this world because the ruler of the universe has made himself infinitely approachable by being, yes, our king, but also our priest, by being, yes, our Lord, but also our sacrificial lamb. Jesus, thank you that you hold these things so beautifully together. I pray that when we say that we are gospel-centered, when we say that we are uh, Jesus-centered, that this would be the vision that we see, not something cold, not something um, merely that happened 2,000 years ago that feels disconnected from our experience, but that we would be able to hear that beautiful music of heaven, that there is a human being reigning and ruling over all things, uniquely the Son, uniquely Lord, in Christ, and yet our Lord in Christ, our good older brother, who makes us, as we'll talk about next week, who makes us sons and daughters by what you suffered for us. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't get out of Hebrews less in love with you, less on fire for you. Lord, let a flame in us through the beauty of not just theology here, but the beauty of the reality that this theology points to far more. Make us first-handers in that way. Lord, I pray that absolutely no one in this room, no one on this call, would stand before you one day and that you would say, I never knew you. Lord, if anyone is in that place today, I pray that they would bow the knee even right now, confess that you are Lord, 
say they can't do it on their own, put their ultimate trust in you. Lord, even someone who's maybe been in church for 20 years who needs to do that, Lord, give them the courage to do that now. And Lord, meet them in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now going to transition, those of you who are on the Zoom call, to, uh, to breakout rooms. Today, we're going to do prayer rooms together. As I said last time,